Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. A bill to legalize medical marijuana is being revived in the state legislature, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. If approved, Wisconsin would join three dozen other states that permit the practice. The bill was introduced by Republican Senator Mary Feltzkowski of Irma, who introduced the bill in the last legislative session, though it received little support at at that time. Under the bill, those suffering from serious medical conditions such as cancer, PTSD, and HIV would be able to consume the product in any form other than smoking. The proposal comes as Republican lawmakers have staunchly rejected several Democratic proposals over the years to legalize marijuana, but Democratic State Senator Melissa Agard, a longtime proponent of legalization, says this bill would benefit large operations rather than small-scale producers. A GOP bill that would make participating in a riot a felony is now headed for the desk of Governor Evers. As we reported yesterday, the legislation would make intentionally participating in a riot that results in damage to people or property a felony. Democrats say the bill is an effort to restrict free speech, while its Republican proponents insist the bill is about protecting the community. While the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources can still test water for PFAS across the state, they cannot take legal action against the polluters of the chemical. The Associated Press reports that Jefferson County Judge William Hugh said that until a water quality standard is set by state lawmakers, no legal action can be taken. Judge Hugh says that testing for the forever chemicals is still allowed under the Clean Water Act, but can only be used for informational purposes. The spring primary is coming up in just a few short weeks on February 15th. And today is the last day to register online for that. If you missed today's deadline, you can also register to vote in person at your clerk's office or at your polling place on Election Day. Madison will not have a spring primary election, but other municipalities and counties around Wisconsin may do. Either way, you might still want to update your registration. The link to do so is myvote.wi.gov. With the chillier weather comes the possibility of freezing or bursting pipes. So, as a reminder, make sure to check that your pipes are properly insulated and leave the heat on in unused parts of the house and investigate leaks that allow cold air inside. To keep peeps, uh, pipes from freezing overnight, a dripping faucet is enough to do the trick. And our thanks to the Madison Water Utility for helping to unfreeze the mighty WORT pipes earlier this morning. Oh, that is a good thing. And now for your roundup of COVID-19 news. Statewide cases of COVID-19 are falling. The seven-day rolling case average in Wisconsin now stands at 9,012 confirmed cases. In Dane County, the seven-day average stands at 1,258 positive cases per day. The City-County Public Health Department says that in Dane County, 181 people are now hospitalized with COVID and 36 are in the ICU. That's part of the reason that Public Health Madison-Dane County extended the countywide face mask order today, which will last through February and may be renewed again. 
Speaking of masks, N95 respirators will be headed to pharmacies and grocery stores over the coming days as part of a federal push to roll out higher quality masks. National Public Radio reports that the push should be fully operational by early February. And locally, N95s will also be available for free at a pickup event tomorrow from noon to 5 p.m. in Sun Prairie. The Boys and Girls Club of Dane County will have packs of 10 masks available for pickup at the McKenzie Family Center at 232 Windsor Street. And those are the headlines. And now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Dane County Board Chair Annalise Eicher is calling for a, quote, reality check about the long controversial jail consolidation project, which is now facing ballooning costs and a variety of perspectives about next steps forward. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has more. In a letter sent today to Dane County Sheriff Barrett, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi, and to the entire Dane County Board, Iker lays out several options for continuing the process of building the county's next jail amid ongoing financial, electoral, and project timeline constraints. She says that the letter is directed at all of the above. You know, this is this is not just to the sheriff's office. This is, you know, also to, you know, our executive's office and other members of the board. I mean, this is this is not a, a singular issue. As I've said, this is something that is, you know, requires every single, you know, actor in this and every single, you know, decision maker and stakeholder who's involved, you know, to be open and communicative. The plan was approved in 2019 and was supposed to begin construction last year. But as the COVID-19 pandemic hit in 2020, the estimated cost of the project shot past its estimated price tag of $148 million as the projected price of labor and material skyrocketed. Two plans before the board would expand funding by millions to continue the project. One option would follow the original plan more closely and would be a seven-story tower that would hold 922 beds for residents. But this is also the more expensive option, adding about $22 million to the plan. But this would allow both the city county jail and the Ferris Huber Center to be closed. The second option is less expensive, costing only around $7 million more than the initially planned $148 million. But it could mean a drastic reduction to the original plan, cutting one floor, reducing visitation areas, and only holding 794 residents. But Supervisor Melissa Ratcliffe says that the second option may not be enough to close the aging and cramped jail in the city-county building, which was built in the 1950s. That jail frequently uses small, solitary confinement cells. You are making the jail smaller in the change order option. It, um, re- it takes off the seventh floor, so it reduces the amount of beds by 128 beds. And so if, we, if our jail population is more than that, where are we going to put them? It's possible that they would, we'd keep the city-county building open still, or we'd have to send uh, residents to other county jails, which is a very large cost from our operations budget that is not budgeted for um, and would cause other services and programs to be lost. Dane County Sheriff Calvin Barrett told the Wisconsin State Journal recently that this practice is inhumane and, quote, 
borderline unconstitutional, end quote. The project is headed to a committee meeting on February 7th and to the full board of supervisors next month. Regardless of which plan is taken, three-quarters of the board must vote to do so. Alternatively, the question could be put to voters as soon as this November. Iker says that the board could alternatively send the question to voters to decide as a ballot referendum. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. The time is now 6.14 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. A new poll released today by the Marquette Law School shows that the majority of Americans object to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, though people's opinions change when asked about whether other restrictions to abortion ought to apply. For more, WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Charles Franklin, the director of the Marquette Law School poll, earlier this afternoon. As we pass the 49th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the future of the decision protecting abortion access could be in peril this year as the U.S. Supreme Court is poised to potentially reverse it. A new Marquette Law School poll released today finds that the majority of Americans oppose overturning the landmark case, but opinions change when it comes to other abortion restrictions. Charles Franklin is the director of the Marquette Law School poll. Charles, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. First, before we get into the results of the poll release today, I just wanted to ask, you are well known for doing polls of Wisconsinites. The poll released today, though, is a national poll. And when we're dealing with data, there's usually a couple of caveats to include. So I'm wondering if we can get those out of the way uh, right up top. What were your methods for this survey and what were some of the most striking changes from your last nationwide survey? Sure. Thanks. Uh We've been serving a national population about the Supreme Court since 2019 as part of the law school poll. As you say, uh, Wisconsin politics has been and still is our bread and butter. Uh, but we are a law school and we are interested in the Supreme Court. So in 2019 and 20, we did uh, national annual surveys. But this year, we started doing these surveys every other month. So six over the course of the year. This most recent one was um, in the field in January 10th through the 21st, and we interviewed a thousand people nationwide with a margin of error of plus or minus four points. And these are samples of adults, not just registered voters. Um, we use for the national survey a uh, 
online survey of people who are sampled through their U.S. postal addresses. So the method gives each address in the country an equal chance to be selected into the sample. So it's a random sample. This is not volunteers coming in off of a website. And once you're sampled, you can only take the survey once. So again, it's not like uh, an online sample where people could volunteer to do it and could potentially do it more than once. Front and center of this poll is measuring public attitudes towards abortion access. Specifically, you asked about public attitudes towards Roe v. Wade and the central issue of a case currently before the court that would restrict abortion access after 15 weeks of pregnancy. You also asked for perceptions towards six-week abortion bans as well. What did you find about public attitudes towards each of these restrictions and how did that vary by party? When asking about striking down Roe versus Wade, which was the decision that established a right to an abortion, only 28% are in favor of striking down that decision. 72% are opposed of the people that have an opinion about that case. But we also have the court considering a case from um, Mississippi called Dobbs, D-O-B-B-S, um, which concerns a Mississippi law that limits abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. That's a substantial reduction from what the current standard is for the court. On this restriction, it's about evenly split. 49 in favor of that limit, 51% opposed, again, of those with an opinion. Not much has changed in opinion about Roe. Uh, it was 30% in favor of striking it down, 70% opposed in November when we last asked about that. And on Dobbs, there's been a little bit of movement to opposition, but only a little. When we first asked about it in September, 54% were in favor of the 15-week ban, 46 were opposed. Now the, that is flipped to the 49 in favor, 51 opposed. But a close divide on that restriction regardless. So next up, we have the vaccine mandates. Can you tell me a little bit about what you found on people's views on these mandates as a whole and then sort of shift from there to vaccine mandates for healthcare workers? Uh, was this seen as sort of a partisan issue in your research? I, well, it's certainly seen as a partisan issue in the sense that Republicans are much more opposed to mandates for anyone uh, and Democrats much more in favor of them. Uh, here we asked about two proposals or efforts from the Biden administration, one that involved the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, uh, requiring that companies with 100 or more employees either require vaccination or regular testing uh, for their workers. Um, there, 54% uh, of the public favored that requirement, 45 were opposed. But the Biden administration also proposed a rule that would require health care workers at health facilities that receive Medicare and Medicaid funding to be vaccinated. And on that one, 61 percent favored that vaccine requirement, 38 percent opposed. Here, the court stepped into the middle of our survey. They decided those two cases uh, partway through our survey period. Um, and they chose to 
stopped the enforcement of the employee ban from OSHA, but they allowed the healthcare worker uh, mandate to go forward. And so a split decision from the court, though the one they upheld is the one that had higher popular support, though both of them had majority support in our survey. Closing out the poll is several different things measuring people's opinions on the U.S. Supreme Court. One thing that I found interesting is when you ask people whether people thought that the court was motivated by politics or by the law, and you specifically had some interesting differences depending on how you worded the question. Can you explain some of that to me? Sure. Um, for, for the several years we've been doing the survey, we've asked whether you thought, the respondent thought, that the decisions of the justices were primarily motivated by the law or primarily by politics. And we've consistently found something around 60%, say primarily the law, and about 40% primarily politics. But there's been other surveys, other national surveys, that have asked, do you think the Supreme Court is primarily motivated by politics or the law? And there they get about 60% saying primarily politics and only 40% the law. So I've been puzzled about why we see this difference in the survey results. And it turns out that you would, you would not think it makes a big difference to ask about the justices versus asking about the court as a single institution, but it actually turns out to do that. So what we did was we asked half of our respondents, a random half of the respondents, at the beginning of the survey, before there were any other questions about the court, uh, we asked the question that we've been using about the justices' decisions. And sure enough, keeping in keeping with the past surveys, 58% said the justices decide mainly based on the law, and 42% mainly on politics. But in that early part of the survey, when we asked the question worded about the court is motivated, it flips to 53% saying mainly politics, 47% mainly the law. And then for another half of the sample at later in the survey, after people had already asked a lot of questions about the court, we saw that saying mainly politics went up quite a bit, whether you were asking about the justices or asking about the court. But having thought a lot and answered a lot of questions about the court, seems to make people think of the court in more political terms so that later in the survey it's now up to 55 percent think that justices are motivated mainly by politics that's up from 42 percent when it was asked early and asking about the court goes up to 60 percent who say mainly politics up from 53 percent early in the survey so i think the the clear takeaway here is it does matter whether you're asking people about the individual justices' motivations or about the court as a whole, but it also matters that the more people have thought about issues before the court, because we've been asking them questions about it, the more likely they are to see the court in political terms rather than motivated primarily by the law.
To bring in a bit of breaking news today, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is set to retire at the end of the court's term, setting the stage for President Biden's first shot at appointing a justice. And your report finds that he is the least known justice. Your poll finds that only 21 percent of people of the public surveyed are able to express an opinion on Justice Breyer. And even the most popular justice, Clarence Thomas, only 55 percent of the public felt like they could comment. On. So I'm wondering if you could tell us about other patterns of public perception towards the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, I think it's important to appreciate, and I don't think anybody would be surprised to know that the justices are not all household names. Uh, compared to other national political figures, they're mostly a lot less well-known uh, than, you know, senators or governors or uh, others. Um but Breyer has stood out in all of the surveys that we've asked this question about recognition of the name and favorability, if you recognize it, uh, as being at the low end of the nine justices. Then um, this most recent one, as you say, 21 percent were not able were able to rate him. Now, those who had an opinion went two to one favorable. But that was just 14% favorable to 7% unfavorable, again, because so many people don't have an opinion of him. Um, there's not a very clear relationship between favorability and how well-known people are. Uh, the biggest pattern is that the three most recent appointees to the court, all three have the lowest net favorability ratings of the nine. And that may be a function of how controversial those appointments were and the, the general partisan uh, splits over Supreme Court appointments of, uh, that we face these days. Uh, it happens that Justice Breyer, appointed in 1994, was one of the last justices to get nearly unanimous uh, approval from the U.S. Senate in his confirmation. We've seen since then the partisan split on confirmation votes for justices become more and more split along party lines with less and less crossover from um, the the president's party and the opposition party. And, and Breyer sort of marks uh, the last of those appointments that uh, were, were more or less consensual in the U.S. Senate. Charles Franklin is the director of the Marquette Law School poll. You can see all the results online at law.marquette.edu slash poll. You can also find Charles on Twitter at Polls and Votes, where you can follow along for more analysis of today's massive poll. Charles, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. A bid to end lifetime prison sentences for youth who've committed crimes. A trip back to UW-Madison in 1967. And the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with Rob McClure. Well, first we'll take a break and check back in with London to see what's been happening in the rest of the world for the past half hour. Stay tuned.
The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half. 25 states and the District of Columbia have abolished sentencing children and youth under 18 to lifetimes in prison. Not so in Wisconsin, where you can be incarcerated for a crime you committed in your youth for the rest of your life. But amidst a busy legislative season, a bill introduced last week seeks to change that. Last week on the Friday 8 o'clock buzz, News Director Shelley Pittman spoke with a lead author on the new bill. Here's an excerpt from that conversation. The full interview is, of course, online at wortfm.org. Democratic State Representative David Bowen is a lead author on the bill. He joins us now to give us an overview. Thanks for joining us after a busy week in the State House. Yeah, it has been a busy week, but I'm so honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Th- thank you again. So let's get straight to it. Can you give us a, a quick overview of, of this bill? There's a lot to it. Absolutely. So essentially, for Wisconsin to join those other 25 states to become the 26th state, ending juvenile sentences without the chance of parole, we essentially must give the instruction to judges that it is required to give sentences in a way where these young people can have a, in a sense, a performance review. Uh, In looking at 15 to 20 years after they've been sentenced and served for their situation and their mindset, their development, to be reviewed if they are in a different mindset by that point to be released on supervision, not just released to the community uh, with no supervision, but to be in supervision just like all the other folks on parole uh, if they are showing behaviors that they are not the same person that they were when they were younger and when they committed that crime, when they committed that act. This is essential for us as a state so that we have young people who have a second chance at life. And uh, you know, this week we had a number of folks from across the state uh, with the Wisconsin Alliance for Youth Justice and uh, the national organization um, that has continued to help push this uh, around the country. We had a great lobby day of folks saying, it's time for us to make this change. It's time for us to be able to institute grace we had victims come to the state capitol. We had uh, young people who were formerly incarcerated, now who are adults, have changed their lives, uh, come to the state capitol and make their case. And uh, it is being heard. We have the most bipartisanship that we've seen on this bill uh, to date. So I want to talk about sentencing and sentence adjustment hearings just a little more on the bill. I'm curious what, so, so this bill would require that judges consider certain things both at sentencing and at this sentence adjustment after 15 years or 20 years for, for certain crimes. These include things like age at the time of the offense, um, ability to appreciate the risks and consequences of the conduct, intellectual capacity. Uh, what do we do, do judges currently consider and and what would you add that they would also have to consider yeah these are all mitigating factors right around the circumstances that the court determines is relevant and you know it it is important for a judge to understand the trauma um, the history of trauma that an individual has suffered um, by the time that they have committed such an act their level of participation in the offense 
if they actually did the crime or if they were a party to the crime. A lot of times uh, judges sometimes don't take into account those things. And it would treat someone uh, who did not actually commit the crime just as harshly as the individual that actually committed the crime. And, and, and it can go from a, a number of different things, from peer and familiar pressure uh, of young people being involved in networks and circles that are glorifying violence, glorifying crime. And, and, and there are certain situations of trying to find belonging in those groups, trying to find protection in those groups when they have lost family and things of that nature. And you can go down the line, but it's just so important for a judge to realize that these are young people that can be redeemed. These are individuals that are not hardened criminals, um, that are not so fixed in their ways that there's no way that they can change. And that's the, uh, the, the main goal of this bill is to recognize that as a state, we can give a second chance to individuals that made a huge mistake when they were younger, when their brains weren't as developed as they would be when they were adults, and give them a chance to succeed again. We know that the recidivism rate for individuals that are uh, re released from crimes that they committed as juveniles um, uh, and, and, and committed acts of this nature, once they are developed, once they, their, their minds get a chance to be developed much further, they have a 1% recidivism rate of going back and committing such acts. So it is so important for judges to keep in mind all these factors that can play into the mindset of a young person where many times they can be manipulated um, and coerced to do these acts. Sure. Representative Bowen, I'm surprised a little bit to see that there is bipartisan support for this bill. A good number of Republican lawmakers, your colleagues, have signed on to the bill as well. Why do you think that is? I, I think it, it really have to point to the fact of how hard it is in this day and age to be able to gain bipartisan support, uh, to work across the aisle at some times where it can be shunned in the state capitol of working across the aisle. And I, I'm so thankful for the advocates, the folks that have been engaged with this, these issues personally and directly. You know, we've had a number of advocates that were even on different sides of this argument before. And, and it's just very clear that even if you were a prosecutor, even if you uh, were a someone on supervision and, uh, and you worked with young people and, and see them get involved in these acts, uh, there are folks from different walks of life that see the value of grace, that see the value of a second chance, especially when you look at the numbers. And thankfully, I do have colleagues in the state capitol on the Republican side and Democratic side that see the value in giving these young people a second shot at life, knowing that they are not the hardened criminals that keep coming across in, in, the, in the headlines that sometimes give us a knee-jerk reaction. These are young people who have committed definitely horrendous acts, but they also have suffered a level of trauma to end up in the place of committing those acts as well. And we hope to see a judicial process and a justice reform process that says let's take into account 
all the things that have happened to you rather than just being hard on you because of what you've done. You will have to do the time. You will have to uh, show that you are being reformed. Uh, but it definitely does show that there is still chance and hope for us to work together and to agree on things that we know that are common sense, that work, um, that can highlight the chance for folks in our state to get access to the workforce again, the economy, uh, to get access to building a legacy in the state of Wisconsin past the things that they've done, the, the, the mistakes that they've made. I think it's a great sign for the legislature, but it also comes at a time when there are other things that you would think that we would be able to agree on yeah. <laughs> and to work together on. Uh, some very clearly, right, with yeah. the pandemic, some very clearly with uh, things happening um, with, with, with folks at such a tough time. But I, I am thankful for my colleagues that continue to, to, to put their support on this bill, and I'm thankful that I get a chance to work with amazing folks that are, that are very passionate about making change in the state of Wisconsin. State Representative David Bowen, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, it's a wonder what a little fresh snow cover will do. Not only does it provide, of course, really lovely, brilliant days like the past couple that we've had when the sun is shining, But it also insulates the ground and absorbs heat poorly, uh, both of which qualities allow for efficient and effective stratification of temperatures once the sun goes down. And with dew points in the low 20s below zero early this morning, we managed to drop the mercury down to negative 18, which definitely exceeded my predictions from the Monday forecast. It was only five degrees off a record low temperature for the date. That was just set a few years ago, actually, in 2019. As I mentioned on Monday, we're keeping our eyes peeled for signs of a pattern change as we go forward into the new month, since there have been indications of this on the longer-range models for a while now. And it does look like we'll have a at least a pattern modification anyway next week, although it uh, won't be terribly drastic. But it may be just enough to put us into a slightly warmer, and at least as we get out towards the end of next week, potentially more active pattern. And I'll say a little more about that in a minute. after I cough, Uh, the cold and dry pattern that has been dominating the past few weeks is still very much visible this evening, at least in the upper layers of the troposphere on the water vapor image of North America, which is linked on the WORT weather webpage. There you see the uh, main energy of the polar jet articulating over an upper ridge that's out over the west coast, then down into the bowl of a wide upper trough that has much of the eastern two-thirds of the continent bathed in Arctic air then back up over a ridge that's out in the western Atlantic Ocean. Both the Global Forecast Systems model and the European show that western ridge breaking first forward to the east in the early part of this next week. That'll warm us, but then it'll reestablish itself, I think, just marginally further to the west, just enough so to allow better cold penetration down into the southwestern states, with that in turn resulting in upper troughing out there, which will help 
uh, which at least might help act to regenerate more panhandle hook-type storms for us that could at least potentially affect this region anyway. Those storms will in any event have better access to gulf moisture and are likely to be larger and more energetic than many of these clipper-type systems that we've seen come past us recently. So that, in any case, might finally moisten up what has been a very dry month for us so far. We're at less than 40% of our normal moisture. These coming several days won't see a whole lot in the way of sensible weather. We've got another incursion of cold air coming at us tomorrow and another less drastic air mass transition Saturday into Sunday. Both of those events look fairly moisture-starved. We'll warm again from Sunday into Tuesday as a storm passes to our north through Canada. And then a significant wave looks to pass in the Wednesday-Thursday period of next week. The upper impulse with this is still way out in the western Pacific Ocean, so it's uh, too early to make any particular predictions about it. But its surface circulation, at least on the models so far, looks to perhaps pass to our southeast. And a couple of the model iterations from earlier today made some a pretty nice snowstorm out of all of that for us. So anyway, it's something to watch as we get on into next week. I'll have a hopefully have a an update uh, for the predictions on the Monday morning forecast on Global Revolutions. But back to, to, to tonight, uh, brisk southwesterly winds up at 12 to 18 miles per hour will continue to put a bite into the air, but will also uh, slowly raise overnight temperatures from the upper single digits to the upper teens by dawn. Clouds are also likely to fill in as better moisture arrives. Tomorrow, uh, passing clouds may thicken enough for some light snow showers, but uh, probably not uh, much if they occur. Temperatures will reach the mid or upper 20s on bearing west and northwest winds through the day, up at 10 to 17 miles per hour. Temperatures will start to descend in the afternoon as another round of Arctic air starts to come in from the northwest. That will help clear the skies during the overnight period and put the low temperature down around zero by Friday morning with lighter northwesterly winds at that time. Friday will be mostly sunny with a high temperature in the low teens on light westerly winds at 3 to 7 miles per hour, backing nominally southwest overnight. Uh, Those southwesterly winds won't uh, do much to prevent the temperatures dropping, so we'll probably get into the low single digits below zero overnight. and We'll be back towards 20 degrees on Saturday as southerly winds strengthen a bit. Cloud cover will increase later in the day, and uh, between that and active uh, southerly winds overnight will hold in the teens. Winds will be veering more west and northwest on Sunday, but it'll be a more uh, Pacific origin air mass coming in at that time, so I think we'll make it back up towards 30 degrees on Sunday. The temperature down at the station on Bedford Street currently is 3 degrees. The dew point temperature is at 7 below zero. Winds are out of the south at 13 miles per hour. Uh, Mostly clear skies overhead. Uh, A lot of passing high clouds now moving into the area from the west. The barometer is at 30.17 inches of mercury and falling fairly steadily. Now 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
We go now to January 1967, when things look bleak for an historic UW building. The school board favors athletics over instruction, and two Madison men die in Vietnam on the same day. Here's Stu Levitan with this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, January 1967 As 1967 opens, it appears the university's old red gym will soon be closing and coming down just as campus planners called for in a master plan adopted in 1960. It was a point of statewide pride and celebration when the Armory Gymnasium was dedicated in 1894, but now it's badly deteriorated, and administrators think the lakeside site begs for better use. It will be raised this summer, University President Fred Harvey Harrington tells the Regents on January 15th, because it won't be needed once the massive new gym out by the Western Playing Fields opens that fall. He says there's considerable disagreement over whether the site should be used for a faculty lounge, guest house, or some other purpose, but he declares emphatically that the fortress-like facility, quote, should be raised. It's unfit for anything other than sweaty exercise, adds University Vice President Robert Clodius. UW student Alan E. Shepard won't be exercising at the Red Gym for a while, as he is sentenced to a year in jail, a year's probation, and ordered to undergo psychiatric treatment after pleading guilty to possession of marijuana. Dean of Students Joseph Kaufman says the Committee on Student Conduct will also consider whether to impose any university discipline on the 21-year-old Madison native. And in other UW-related AODA news, a city committee has proposed extending the dry zone around campus in which retail liquor stores are prohibited. A subcommittee of the City University Coordinating Committee wants to move the southern border from Dayton Street to Regent Street and the eastern end from Lake Street to Francis. The dry zone has not been changed since it was established in 1934. And the city cracks down on another aspect of student life, banning scooter and motorcycle parking on State Street and most of University Avenue, except in specially designated stalls. Lots of news from the public schools, starting with the traditional New Year's Day vandalism, this year at Orchard Ridge School, where juveniles smash 44 windows and 18 shades. Their parents pay about $400 of the $761 in damages. The school board ends a lengthy stalemate over contract terms with its teachers, approving an agreement with Madison Teachers Incorporated that keeps teachers among the lowest paid in the area, but establishes the union's right to compulsory arbitration of grievances. Madison schools will pay starting teachers $5,500 in the 67-68 school year. Most area systems will pay $6,000. That same night, the board approves $408,000 in contracts for an athletic facility and grandstand at James Madison Memorial High School, which veteran board member Arthur Diney Mansfield extols as a year-round multi-sport complex to be available for 
public use. Deviating from its standard practice, the board lets Roberta Leidner, representing the Capital Community Citizens, raise questions about the proposal. A citizen can't just stand up and ask to be heard, Superintendent Robert Gilbert says, but the board lets Leidner speak before overriding her concerns and agreeing with Mansfield. The legendary university athlete, in his 30th year as the Badger baseball coach, advocates forcefully for the facility, which will be named in his honor after his death in 1985. It's the cost of schools, Mayor Otto Feske tells a League of Women Voters luncheon a few weeks later, that has almost single-handedly caused the city tax rate to rise over the past 11 years from 36 to 47 mills. The cost of city services have stayed about $10 per $1,000 of property value, he notes, while school costs have jumped from 15.7 mills in 1957 to 26.3 mills this year. Fesky and the council continue to oppose creation of a unified school district, which would give the school board independent budget authority. A legal setback for feminism, as Judge Richard Bardwell voids on jurisdictional grounds, the 1966 Industrial Commission ruling that Madison discriminated against Ruth Fay when it denied her a bartender's license. Bardwell finds it, quote, clearly reasonable to conclude that the city denied Fay a license, quote, because she was a female, but holds that Industrial Commission jurisdiction is limited to employment relationships and does not cover the issuance of licenses. Democrats in the state Senate make a modest bit of history by choosing as their leader the young Madison attorney Fred A. Risser, their first floor leader from outside Milwaukee since another young Madison attorney, Gaylord Nelson, nabbed the top spot in 1951. Risser, an unabashed liberal, is able to put together a winning coalition because the conservative and liberal factions from Milwaukee could not agree on a candidate. He'll have his work cut out for him, as Democrats hold only 12 of the Senate's 33 seats. Risser maintains a law practice with his father, Fred E. Risser, whose own career as a Republican state senator was ended in 1948 by Gaylord Nelson. And three deaths to note this month. Thomas R. Hefty, 81, the son of Swiss immigrants who rose from being a part-time bookkeeper to become president and chairman of the First National Bank, dies January 19th after breaking his hip in a fall at his home in Maple Bluff. And two younger men of Madison died the same day in Vietnam, January 12th. Major Charles Toma, 30, East High, 1954, UW Class of 1958, dies after being shot in the head by a sniper while leading a search-and-destroy mission of the Black Lion 2nd Battalion in the jungle northwest of Saigon. The son of retired Army Colonel Henry C. Toma, 4182 Nakoma Road, and Mrs. Clifford Engel of San Francisco, Major Toma was captain of the cross-country team, a member of the track and wrestling teams, and a member of Phi Kappa Sigma at the UW. Recipient of the Army Commendation Medal with Oak Leaf Clusters, he is survived by his parents and his wife, the former Beverly Hubbard, and three sons. And Army Private First Class Thomas E. Pete Matouche, 21, East High Class 1964, son of Mr. and Mrs. Joseph J. Matouche, 1959 East Washington Avenue. 
is killed when the truck he's in goes over a landmine. Matouche was drafted shortly after high school graduation and sent to Vietnam in August 1966. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. This is a show which is produced largely by volunteers. And although we've had a few new reporters come on recently, we could still use you, where you could still use more production power for this uh, listener-sponsored station. So get in contact with WORT during business hours if you're interested. We provide all the training, and it's a good bit of fun. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan, Chuck Kateman produced or uh, engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Wegehaupt produced the newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.